Welcome to This Month in Security. I'm your host, Aubrey King, with Dev Central. And joining me this month, we've got Shane Singh. So what we're trying to do is work out what are the things that make sense where and where do we collaborate and how it is we make it simple for people to consume. Sagar Bure. When I talked to Shane, I had the list ready of the top 10 machine learning, which you see on the OS website. Malcolm Heath. This was a piece of jewelry from his deceased grandmother that had a special code that he and his grandmother used to share secrets with. And could it could it translate it? And it happily told him what the capture said. And Sander Vinberg. Everybody in the room was kind of a hot shot. It was pretty wild to just be listening to discussion at that level. We'll be talking about the OWASP Top 10 for Machine Learning, the Vuln Forecast Colloquium, and then we'll get into the usual roundtable with Sander and Malcolm. So strap on those earbuds and get ready for This Month in Security. This Month in Security, I got a chance to catch up with Shane Singh and Sagar Bure, two of our F5 engineers who also lead up the OWASP Top 10 for Machine Learning Project. They catch me up on where the project stands today and what's coming up. In addition to that, we'll have the usual roundtable with Malcolm and Sander. Before we get into that, I want to show you a little bit that Sander had to talk about with the Vuln Forecasting Colloquium. Check it out. It was all about forecasting vulnerabilities. It was a combination of vulnerability researchers and data scientists and security. It actually was kind of wild because the baseline level of ML experience and knowledge was so high. I've never been in a room where people were just casually throwing around ideas about ML. It was it was very inspiring. So it was it was niche of the niche vulnerability conference sort of thing. And so what was the conference name? Vuln Forecast. You spoke at this conference? Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. Ben too, or just you? So Ben and I went and and we spoke and then it was like a colloquium, not a conference, I guess, which meant that it was open discussion. So you could, you could ask questions whenever you wanted. A lot of the presentations were conversational. And I just found out yesterday that one of the guys who spoke literally wrote the book about using Ghidra. The level of these guys was very high. Everybody in the room was kind of a hot shot. It was pretty wild to just be listening to discussion at that level. So it was really cool. Were any of the conference talks recorded? Because I'd love to see them. I don't think so. I think that they talked about it, but they wanted to keep it a little bit more intimate and sort of present. If I remember correctly, there was some sort of announcement at the beginning. If I remember correctly, Aaron said that they had talked about it, but they decided not to because not all the speakers were into it. And they just said, screw it. Yeah, fair um, enough. Most of the speakers were happy to share their slides. And so in a couple of days, they're going to set up a, a new communications channel on some platform. And then they're going to share all the slides around and stuff. And there's a, a couple of those decks that I'm really keen to get a look at. There was a researcher who is an interesting guy. He was He's from Argentina, teaches InfoSec and data science at the University of Trento in Italy. Before that, he was at the University of Twente in in the Netherlands. So a really, really international guy, part of a very international team doing this kind of work. And he pulled up a slide that was his literature review. And it was like he had done sort of a, a completion matrix for all the sources in this space. Kind of what aspects of own are they looking at? Are they really doing post-measurement or are they doing prediction? I mean, Malcolm, you've heard me say all these times that I wish we just had the, the time
time to do a proper literature review. I had methodological jealousy looking at this slide. I was like, here's somebody who actually took the time to read all the papers in the space. Among other slides, that's one I want to get my hands on just because I always feel like- Here's I, your reading list, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. I should probably back up a little bit because I think there might be some community members here that are scratching their head going, Vol- forecasting, what is that? How do you forecast vulnerabilities? Can you do an overview on how that works technologically? I mean, the inspiration for the conference, I think, came out of some core work that was done by a guy named Aaron Leverett and Matilda Rode when they were at Airbus. And they are no longer at Airbus. They've each gone on to different things. But a few years ago, they presented a talk at Siricon, which was a machine learning framework that they had devised to essentially forecast not specific vulns, not to say, oh, here comes a Windows O-Day, but rather to forecast the rate of vulnerability disclosure in a given time period so that vulnerability management teams can scope and plan their funding. So it's like if you are forecasting among the vulns that you have within your network and you see that based on how things have been going, you extrapolate that line out and then it looks like it's going to be a big month next month. There's going to be a big year next year. Might not be the year to cut your funding. A little bit more complicated than that. A lot of it goes into the finer points of the model selection in in the ML model. So Aaron and, and Matilda came up with this system, which is called Vuln Forecast. And so that was sort of the inspiration for this whole conference. This is really sort of Aaron's deal that he put this thing together. But it it so happens that some of the work that Ben did for our CVE report last year was also able to extrapolate the future rate of vulnerability disclosure, kind of like an alternate read on the same stuff that Aaron and Matilda were forecasting. So that was kind of why they asked us to come is that we had sort of used two different methods and two different perspectives to get to some same basic answers about where our vulns going. There was a talk by a guy from the Zero Day Institute which is now part of Trend Micro, doing a talk about their own data stores and and what conclusions can you get. But also it was really great about talking about what conclusions should you be careful about working with ZDI data. So that was really cool. The CISA organization, they came and it was really cool because they walked us through the stakeholder specific vulnerability classification system, the SSVC system, which is a new approach to prioritizing vulns. Kind of spiritually almost the opposite of EPSS, but I think it has a lot of good things about it, a lot of advantages. I've studied SSVC. I've heard people give talks about integrating it into different kinds of full management frameworks, but it was really cool to hear the way that they approach it from the people who designed it and implemented it every day. So it was cool that CISA came. So there was a cool talk by a guy who put some time into differentiating between vulns that are actually bad and vulns that are just loud. And so one of the examples he gave was all those vulns that get a trademark name, like Spectre and Meltdown and Heartbleed and stuff. This is something that Ray was even talking about years ago, early days of F5 Labs, about branded vulns and the sort of marketing around these big vulns, right? So Matt Berniger sort of did analysis of about sort of methods for unearthing the vulns that maybe not everybody's paying attention to, but the ones that actually cause some damage. So that was a really cool talk. I, I later found out that this guy has done an amazing amount of stuff. He was a guy who wrote the book on Ghidra, spent some time at Mandiant. Now he's at Marsh McLennan, spent some time at Rapid7 before that. So yeah, yeah, really impressive resumes all around. What I wouldn't have given to be part of that, right? I mean, it sounds like there were some pretty cool people there. Now let's shift gears a little bit and catch up with Shane Singh and Sagar Bure from our Hyderabad office and find out what they're doing with the machine learning top 10. Basically, the 
machine learning security top 10 is effectively listing the top 10 risks as it pertains to machine learning. And the reason that we got involved with this project, which we'll get into, is that there's obviously a lot of interest in AI now. But if we cast our mind back to before Bitcoins and Hyperledgers, everyone was talking about using machine learning in their security technologies probably about five or six years ago, right? And so some of the risks have been around since then, and we've sort of found a few new ones, right? And to sort of talk a little bit about what the risks involve, a lot of those are at a level of thinking about input validation and things like that. But more importantly, some of the things that we cover is ML ops. So this is the operations of machine learning systems, right? And there is a lot of risks associated with how each of those pipelines flow and your day-to-day hygiene of these things, right? So hopefully that sort of gives you an understanding of the, the types of risks that we try and cover. Certainly does for me. I, I guess then, how is it that you both came to be involved in this project? Probably it was a year back when I was stepping into the domain of security of ML, right? I mean, we have heard about ML for security from quite some time. We have machine learning, how do you secure applications? But I was wondering, how do you secure the machine learning deployments itself? Then I met Shan and I, I talked about this idea of listing down. When I talked to and I had the list ready of the top 10 machine learning, which you see on the OS website. I told Shan that I have the list ready. Why don't, why don't we put it on OS website and make this as an industry standard, which are referred as a go-to baseline for securing all the machine learning deployments. And then after a couple of months, we had it running on the website, but his great job was even before it was up on the OWASP.org, we had everything tested up and inside reviewed so that whenever we have access to the OWASP repository, we just do a GitHub fork and spin all the changes to the OWASP public website. I'll oh, just add another sort of lens to this because it may be interesting for our viewers. A lot of our viewers may not know that inside F5, a lot of the sort of ways that we've changed working. And one of these things is to encourage internal community. So as you think of open source communities externally, we also have a concept of an inner source community inside F5 that we've encouraged. And uh, I wear a couple of hats, you know, we talked about the security architecture. There are some other initiatives inside F5, like the open source program office and our office of CTO, which has a project for innovation called Greenhouse. And in those projects, I contribute as an ambassador. I met Saga through his innovation to be a mentor. So probably it's worthwhile telling our viewers that although we happen to be sitting here in our lovely Hyderabad office, which is Saga's office, I'm based out of Melbourne, Australia, which is probably 10 hours flight south. So we met because of the innovation that that Saga had. And as a mentor, said, you know, we can make this into the project and start the work. In fact, my reason for being here in Hyderabad, besides meeting customers, was also to come meet some of the other innovators here in F5 as well. That's really cool. And I I have to say, having been here for a long time, it's awesome to see this kind of level of community and innovation in F5, just as an aside, for sure. I am curious to know if you guys have any thoughts on how I'm involved in another project, the top 10 for large language models. Do you envision these two projects maybe being able to work together in some way or bring some sort of cohesive message to the field or the community? Most definitely. In fact, this is probably 
the front of mind topic at the moment as we look to get towards a level of the content that is consumable externally, right? In fact, we're probably going to organize a call with Steve later on this week to understand. So the large language model project is astounding, astounding for the level of interaction, but also a lot of folks have been really interested in how fast the community engagement and being able to aggregate all of that enthusiasm and work was able to sort of progress so fast. We're going to have a call with Steve to firstly understand how it is that he was able to do that. And secondly, how it is that we can contribute, right? Like, because two things, there is actually not only the large language model, but also there is another project that is looking at AI privacy, like the risks with AI privacy. So what we're trying to do is work out what are the things that make sense where and where do we collaborate and how it is we make it simpler for people to consume. I want to mention that what we don't want to do right now is confuse anyone by stopping any of the work on LLM or any of those sorts of things. And that's why we want to do it in a more sort of concerted effort. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. There's been a little bit of talk on our Slack about, you know, being able to bring an AI best practices package to the field, essentially. Here's everything, no matter what it is AI-wise you're securing, we're going to have you covered, which I I think is spectacular. If you talk just about AI, it's a vast field in itself, right? You have roles like data scientist, data engineer, and research scientist big data engineer. So you cannot have just one standard and one adoption for all of them because they have a different role and they want to refer to what helps me in my role. So that's where LLM, it's an NLP program, right? So when you have to talk about how do you secure natural language processing models, when we talk about machine learning, it's again a vast field. How do you secure a machine learning model? Probably let's say a a vision detection system or probably let's say how does an autonomous car not get hacked? Probably we address that. Probably how does not chatbot hack? That's probably an LLM LLM problem. So that's where we need to coexist together and suit what the industry needs. It's funny you mentioned the difference is kind of which project might be used for which things. Mm -hmm. I think that there's been, this is my perception anyways, I think that for the past 10 years, we've been talking about AI and ML as though they're the exact same thing. And I think over the next couple of years, we're going to find you know, an easier way to draw the distinction between which is which. But I think some of this, you know, I guess some of this security project here with OWASP will, I think, help with that, especially as we get the message out. Yeah, actually, you mentioned something there that triggered a thought. One of the things that we're hoping to over time highlight in this project is so for people that are familiar with a lot of the OWASP projects and not just the, the flagship ones like the top 10 and the API top 10, you'll know that there are other projects like the equally important application security verification system, which is like a, a checklist of sorts for how to procure, right? That's arguably the, the detailed level view of what you need to do. There are also fantastic projects like cheat sheets, which go into each of the top tens and things. So Audrey, what you mentioned and what Sagar is talking about is at the moment, at least aspirationally, we're looking at funneling all of those things at the moment into the top 10. Like we may produce a top 10, but as we're getting contributors, which we want to talk about, we may end up spinning out a, and here's the cheat sheets and here's the verification system 
oh, by the way, you know, a lot of people are obviously interested in the breaking, not the fixing. Okay, can you create me a set of demos for how risk one, risk two, risk three is done? So at least at the moment, we have aspirations to try and harness the contribution and be able to meet all of those because there isn't there isn't a project that does that. And lastly, what I'll mention is there has to be a what's in it for me thing, right? So the roles that Sagar mentioned, when you look at the top 10, people forget that the top 10 is not written for security operations people, it's written for developers, right? And so one of the things that the ML top 10 is looking to do is I'm a data scientist. What things should I be concerned with? I'm a machine learning operations person. What things should I be concerned with? I'm a traditional AppSec person that manages the application. What things should I be concerned with? So we sort of started putting a framework to putting some of these things together, but hopefully that gives our viewers an understanding of all the sorts of things that we're trying to encompass at least. I would think so. Now, I I guess I should probably ask, do you guys have any immediate needs for the project? I know how this is and it's not a paid thing, right? So you got kind of ask for help. So do you guys have any immediate needs right now? And how can people get involved? What's the easiest way? The easiest way they can get involved is by firstly joining the Slack channel. So hopefully we can provide our viewers with like links to Slack channel. You know, the code of conduct is quite important in these sorts of things, right? So we tell everyone to first read the code of conduct. And the reason we mention this is when we work on open source projects where people are from different countries and different regions, that humor and things like this don't translate. So it's important to realize that we're aware of all of these things when we're contributing, right? So at a first reading code of conduct and secondly, jump in on Slack. Thirdly, if people are just ready to start pushing code and things like that, within the OWASP page, it gets you a direct link to where the Markdown pages are listed in a GitHub repository. And we have a tag or label for help wanted at the moment. That's going to increase over time because we're doing bi-weekly working group calls and I'm planning to add way more help wanted. It's just balancing out what we're doing versus having time to put the steps in place. Hopefully that gives people enough of a place to go start. Lastly, I'll just add one of the things that the large language model project did really well is being able to delegate areas of responsibility, right? And one of the things that will probably get onto the Git repo in terms of issues and helps wanted in the coming weeks is if someone wants to take AI supply chain, you know, you can be the lead, go find your folks, go do this. If someone is interested in Actually, already we've changed adversarial attacks to input manipulation, right? So we've already had a, a iteration of one of the risks. But if someone wants to take that as a stream of work that they would like to do, then we're happy for them to be able to lead, right? It's important to understand that as co-leaders, we're not gatekeepers, we're just facilitators or PMs, if you will, to make sure that everything gets done. Similar to what I said, if you are an infrastructure engineer, we have few attacks that you can lead up to. If you are a vision engineer or a computer vision engineer, probably we have some attack vectors like adversarial attack or input validation that you can own up to. So we have everything for everyone. Awesome. Any idea when you might expect to be out of beta and full-blown? I'm targeting, or we are rather targeting a soft launch, not a beta, but a soft launch before my talk at the Global AppSec on the 5th of October, which is not that far away. 
that's a soft launch to at least advertise to the OWASP community and AppSec people. I would say it's really hard to tell actually at the moment. I'd like to say by the end of the calendar year, but we're still in that early phase of enough people haven't given eyeballs to the content to rinse it all out sort of thing, right? But I would like to say by the end of the calendar year, we would be out of beta, right? That's a stretch goal. Let's put it that way. Finally, let's do a roundtable. Talk about what we saw in the news this month which was predominantly AI-related. Check it out. For me, the prime focus of this past month has been so much on AI just because of the OWASP connection. For me, that seems to be something that now people in F5 are asking me a lot of questions about how can we secure this? What in our portfolio matches up well with some of the vulnerabilities that are out there today? And it, it's neat because as we watch the, the big hacks in the news or the big vulnerabilities that have hit the news, like we had this co-pilot and the Amazon code whisper emitting other people's API keys, as well as a full-on breach of chat GPT. So, I mean, that that kind of thing is is interesting when you look at sort of the big players right now in in the AI space clearly having issues securing their own resources. What that means for people that are trying to put up their own chatbots is like you have a mountain to climb. Most of what I've been looking at is API defense and things like that. Do you guys have any thoughts on how we go about defending these things? Well, I'll start off by just saying that that an awful lot of the things that I would be concerned about, and there's and there's certainly some evidence. I mean, there's this 38 terabyte data leak from Microsoft, right, of AI training data is a really, really good example of this, is that whenever you're developing any new technology, and certainly this is true for AI or the kind of things that we're talking about right now, you're going to have data, you're going to have code, you're going to have all of the usual things that you, that you have for any application you're developing, any project you're doing, and you need to be doing best practice when it comes to managing that data, securing it, making sure that people who shouldn't have access to it don't. And then moving from there, I think there's a lot of already prior work done in terms of what are you including in your data set that you're training your AI with? Are you stripping out secrets? Are you stripping out IP? How are you cleaning that data? How are you managing the process for doing that? And it seems like an awful in an awful lot of cases that hasn't been done super well. I mean, or it's done sort of post facto, like we're going to train a big model and then and then we figure out, oh, this model is is very biased or this model contains data that shouldn't be in it that can be brought out in some way or another, whether it's via prompt or, or other means. OK, well, we're going to have to go back and fix it somehow. And to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure how you go about doing that once you've trained a model. Do you add guardrails after the fact that then try to prevent that data from being issued forth in a large language model? I mean, I saw an interesting thing that a friend of mine posted the other day, which was he had a CAPTCHA. It was a relatively simple one. And he asked, it was probably ChatGPT. I'm not 100% sure which one it was, but he asked one of these things, solve this CAPTCHA for me. And it was like, hey, I don't solve CAPTCHAs. He then took a picture of a piece of jewelry and cut and pasted the CAPTCHA image on top of it and told the LLM that this was a piece of jewelry from his deceased grandmother that had a special code that he and his grandmother used to share secrets with. And could it could it translate it? And it happily told him what the capture said, which if your approach is to put guardrails on after the fact, then you're, I think, setting yourself up for a situation where clever prompts can get around your guardrails. So that just, I think, reinforces for me the importance of, of being really, really certain about what you're actually training your model and how you cleanse that data and make sure it's it's only got what you want in it 
and doesn't have stuff that people are going to object later to it. Or having more guardrails built in somehow. Just from a basic sort of security perspective, it's better to fix things earlier than later. It's better to structure your architecture and stuff that it's in such in such a way that it's secure rather than trying to bolt security on at the back end. I think all of these things still apply to the situation. I think you're right with that. It's funny you mentioned that that picture because it's still up on my desktop right now. Uh, I was looking at that and someone was trying to classify that as a prompt injection. That's not a prompt injection unless that picture was not a captcha, but someone saying do something else. In theory, you could have a picture of a new prompt and actually eject with that same mechanism. But the the funny thing to me with what, what I'm seeing with the large language models and the applications that are built with them, the idea is that rather than looking at things linear, it'll look at the whole chunk of, of text and classify each a subject or object versus the words that are next to it, right? And then it classifies each word and says, how many times do I see this word next to this same word that's next to it here? How likely is it that these two are related, right? So you can do those things, but with the picture, getting back to that picture, I don't understand how visually you could actually do that kind of thing. Like, how would you teach? I have no idea how you would teach a model. This is a CAPTCHA. You should know this is a CAPTCHA. And it's just a picture of a CAPTCHA on top of another picture. The way that they solve this problem in computer vision in in general is a a form of dimensionality reduction known as convolution. And one of the things that makes convolution so interesting is that I'm given to understand that it's actually not that far from how the human brain processes images and and it does things like the reason why human vision is so good at recognizing human faces is that there is sort of a, a substructure in the brain that says that when it sees certain sort of combinations of light and dark and and shape and form and everything it says that's a human face which is also why we sometimes get what you could call like a false positive and we see faces and other stuff like like toast or coffee or whatever so actually the the process of sort of developing what you would call like a semantic embedding, sort of developing in text in a large language model, this sort of greater than a word level sort of semantic structure, not that different from what they're doing in computer vision. It's just that they have to sort of reduce every pixel to an array of light and dark values, right? Or in there were three color values if if you're doing color imagery, right? So you reduce every pixel down to a matrix of data. And then you look at the frequency that you see this combination of data in this pixel surrounded by the eight pixels around it. And then so now you have an, a three by three grid of pixels that, and you start to develop a relationship there. And then you go one bigger. And what you're doing in that case is by, by sort of moving a bigger and bigger lens over each pixel and looking at the relationship between one pixel and an increasingly larger number of neighbors, what you're doing then is you're generalizing and saying, I don't actually care about the content of a single pixel. I care about relationships between these bigger groups and groupings of pixels. And then eventually you get to the point where it's like, hold on, that grouping of pixel looks a lot like a CAPTCHA. And the last time I saw CAPTCHA data, I did this. And that's a super simplified explanation of how ML works in terms of image processing. So there's a lot of similarity between what the LLMs are doing and and what the, the sort of visual convolutional approaches are doing. It's just that one is doing it linearly because that's how language works. The other is doing it in a grid format because that's how images are structured. A great explanation. Thanks. I'm glad I asked about it. One thing for me has been clear, though, is it that the architectures for these things are really, really different. One of the things that I've been talking about recently is trying to make sure that we look at this thing not as a traditional enterprise application. It's like a a bold reminder of what multi-cloud is, 
We do have an internal LLM-based application that has been fascinating to watch, pulling apart the architecture of this thing and seeing how it goes to other clouds than where it is currently today, making API calls. It's just amazing watching this, but really it makes me feel like multi-cloud security is a necessity today. Like that's something that we have to get as a normal thing. We can't just go all in on one thing and expect like, okay, this cloud is the only place we're ever going to live. I just don't see that as being the reality in the future. I mean, when Google has certain things that it's better at, but your application lives in Azure, you're not going to just want to settle for what Azure has. You're going to want to go to Google for that portion. And I think that's the new way now. I don't think we're going to look at large firewalls and data centers to try and stop the threats that are coming up today. So my first thought, Aubrey, there, listening to you, is that I think you're absolutely right for a certain size of organization. And then my next question is, where's the threshold there? If you're a small org and you're just baking this kind of system into your network now or your enterprise, I set up for that if I was building it from the ground up, as opposed to if I was a company with 40,000 people and I was bolting this thing onto an existing infrastructure that's like 20, 30 years old. And for me, that always comes down to, I mean, we've talked about this a lot in security of the concept of like the poverty line, right? So it seems to me like there are going to be two AI poverty lines. There are going to be organizations and folks who aren't even in a position to take advantage of it for whatever reason. Maybe yeah. they can consume commodity ones like ChatGPT, but they can't consume these more customized ones that are trained on their own data and have some advantages. But there's also going to be a sort of AI security poverty line. And those are going to be the people who don't go through all the processes that Malcolm was just talking about, about threat modeling it both as an application and a data store and also as an AI system. And every week I look at all the stuff coming out about AI right now, and I think it reminds me of a gold rush. And I think it's important to remember that in mm-hmm. a gold rush, not everybody gets rich, Right. Everybody goes west or everybody starts digging and only actually a small number of people find any gold. And so I think probably what we're going to see is that not not all these orgs chasing this gold rush are actually going to strike any gold. And a lot of them are going to either get egg on their face or they're just going to find that they threw a lot of money after something and, and got beat to the punch by a better service. I think that gold rush analogy is super apt because as far as I know, in the American gold rush in the West, the people who actually made the most money were the people who were selling things to the people who were going out looking for gold. Oh yeah, right, the outfitters, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, and some of them became extremely wealthy off of that. And I'll just follow that on as well, just with one idea, which is it's possible, I don't know, but it's possible that customized ML models or AI models that uh, are specific to a business that want to be deployed in a multi-cloud solution or in a hybrid cloud scenario. I expect there are probably people already, but if not, we'll be very soon working on how to containerize that kind of thing. I don't know, but I think that seems like the, a logical approach to to solving the sort of how do I do this in a hybrid cloud scenario. Obviously, won't be using proprietary models that are owned by Microsoft or Google or whatever, but if you can come up with a system that really fits your business for the unique thing you want to do with it, I'm expecting people to be really looking at how do we get these things as small as possible, as deployable as possible, all of those things that you get with any new technology where we're trying to shrink it, make it more flexible, make it more easy to deal with, really, right? Thanks for joining us on this month in security. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to give us a like or subscribe. And we hope to see you next month as we find out a little bit about what a release lead does for a project. Thank you.